This is a Federal News Network podcast. In its ongoing search for innovation towards that strategic edge, the Office of Naval Research has turned to academia. ONR recently sponsored a research project called the Gordian Knot for National Security Innovation. It's housed at Stanford University. Here with what's been happening since the center opened last fall, the chief of naval research, Rear Admiral Lauren Selby. Admiral Selby, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. It's great to be with you today. And I want to start with the name of this project, the Gordian Knot for National Security Innovation. Nobody untied the Gordian Knot. It was just sliced in half with a sword stroke. So is that the kind of breakthrough you're looking for here? Yeah, I mean, just think about it. So you get this Gordian knot, which was supposed to be some intractable, unsolvable knot. And I think the theory was that uh, it was proposed that the person who could untie that would become the king of Asia. Well, Alexander the Great apparently walks in. He looks at that knot and he says, let me take my sword out. And he just like whacked into it. It kind of reminds me of that scene in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where the guy comes out with a sword swishing away and Harrison Ford pulls out his revolver and he just shoots him. Like, okay, got it. Just cut right to the chase. But that's what I'm looking for is those kind of orthogonal, outside-the-box ideas that we traditionally just are not able to come up with because we become so constrained by our existing bureaucracies, existing processes, and we sometimes can't get out of our own way to go find those kind of solutions. So I'm trying to energize this process. And that seems particularly relevant right now with what has been going on overseas for the past few days. You have a military with very old physical platforms and tubes and hulls and so forth, but they have modernized them with the intelligence in what is coming out of those platforms. And in some ways, it's a way of thinking more than a technological challenge. Yeah, what's going on right now, obviously, in Ukraine is atrocious. And that is just one further example of basically the fact that the world we live in today is not a safe place. And uh, there are players on the world stage out there that are trying to find ways to subvert world order that we have uh, grown accustomed to and that has allowed our economies of many nations around this world to flourish. Freedom for you know those who are part of democratically aligned nations are being threatened. And this is just one example. Uh, there are many others. And uh, you know, it, it, let me just frame this for you, because even before the Ukraine thing came up, I think you, know, you and I and, and your listeners all sense we're in a kind of a very pivotal, tumultuous time in history. And some of it is driven by the politics on the world stage, some stuff you're seeing right now with Russia and Ukraine. But much of it is actually being driven by technology. And I think all of us are recognizing that technology is racing ahead at a rapid pace, but the systems that we have in place to live our lives are failing to keep up with that technology. Now, there's some examples like SpaceX, Apple, Google, where they have kind of figured it out and they have become truly digital companies. And they're actually adapting and operating very well in that environment. But there are many others, and I think the majority of other companies, organizations, governments that are struggling to figure out how to keep up. And so I think that sense of that that discomfort right now with Ukraine is now being taken to the next level. This is not just about feeling uncomfortable. This is about people dying and companies being overthrown because of some of these waves of change that are being experienced. So I am trying to find ways to energize folks to think differently about the world we live in today and challenge every assumption. And it's not just about providing new kit or hardware to the warfighter. That's important. But it's also about challenging our processes, our bureaucracy, finding different ways to do business so we can go faster. Now, from a practical standpoint, the ONR looks at so many domains of physics and projectiles and kinetics and hulls, you name it. What would be the scope of what you're doing here at Stanford? 
This is going to be everything from unique technologies, biotech, artificial intelligence, hypersonics, quantum. Also, it's going to be about policy, procedure, things that we, we can change that allow us to do things differently. So it's, it's really across the spectrum. It's not just about things, but it's about the way we do business, the way we think. It's about training people to just be innovators. It's not intuitive for people to think that bad. So we're training people to think differently about how they approach problems. And what form will this take? Research projects at the individual level? I mean, how does this work operationally, yeah. the whole yeah. center? Well, so just for background, we've actually been, been working with Stanford for a while. I mean, in fact, they were one of the first grants we provided back in 1946. ONR is 75 years old now. That was one of the first grants. And it was for Stanford engineering to work on microwave, microelectronics, things like the Minuteman two missile systems. A lot of things came out of that. And really, initial semiconductor work came out of that initial research. So we've you know had a long partnership. We've been doing something called hacking for defense for many years with Stanford. And Stanford has now kind of taken that and they're running with that on their own. And it's also been going out to many other universities. But this is where we provide, uh, well, we, we, it's not just us, it's other parts of the government, provide example problems to Stanford. They take those into the classroom and have teams of students working with professors, and, and they bring in speakers like myself and others to talk about things, but they have them think about how could they solve this problem in a different way. And it's resulted in some really kind of interesting things. You know, you know this. I mean, just think about think about the younger generations, right? They come in with blinders wide open, and they come up with ideas that you and I, unfortunately, that's kind of in the rear view. I mean, we, I still come up with good ideas once, well, I'm sure you do too, but many more come out of these younger folks. And it's our job now to take those and elevate, magnify, put the megaphone up to their mouth to blast the message out because there's some gems in there that will help us actually change the world. We are speaking with Rear Admiral Lauren Selby. He's chief of Naval Research. It's only been going four months, this latest round. Give us some examples. Right now, the, the latest one, what we're trying to actually do for kind of the first project here. So I've been on a campaign that I call Reimagining Naval Power. So, uh, again, Naval Power is Navy and Marine Corps because I'm part of the Department of the Navy, so it's both the Navy and Marine Corps. So I came to the job about 19 or so months ago now, and I looked around and I said, okay, we've got some amazing hardware in the military, amazing systems, very complex, very high-end. But the world is moving to a place where I believe a lot of the things that could actually provide value are actually smaller, maybe cheaper, less complex, and you could proliferate in numbers like hundreds or thousands. These are things that like autonomous systems, unmanned or uncrewed, as the British would say, uncrewed systems, maybe just unattended sensors you could scatter over the ocean or drop on the floor. I think it's a different world. Now, I'm not suggesting that you still don't need these more complex things, because you do. And there may be a day late this century where you don't, but for now you do. But they need to be augmented, complemented with some of these other capabilities to provide additional feeds of information. So one of the first projects that I've got uh, the Gordy Knott Center thinking about is how do we bring together a team of thought leaders and students to try to challenge some of our existing assumptions and try to propose some additional ideas. The idea that I have put on the table is what I call a hedge strategy or a plan B. And that is a strategy where we go after the small, the agile, and the many. And what I mean by that is small systems that have a cost point that is low enough so that I can have many of them, so the many piece. And it's agile. I don't necessarily mean agility in the physical space, although that's important, but it's more in the ability to rapidly adapt the technology and change it. So agility, in a sense, I can change 
what it looks like, what it sounds like, what kind of signals it puts out. And we can do that because most of these systems I'm talking about have digital backbones that are software-based. And so the software can be rapidly changed to make, make these things look differently, act differently and provide different information. That's what I'm, I've got to go on after first. Yeah, that sounds like a challenge for the human-machine interface because the software can adapt, but the thinking has to adapt in a yeah. situation where, well, this column is kind of blocked. We're watching this in Ukraine. The main road in hasn't been going so well, so maybe they're circling around more to the northeast or something. Is right. that kind of part of this? That would be a part of that. I'm hoping that's something that comes out of this. You know, I don't want to taint the jury. I want to let them come up with the ideas and then tell me. But just so you know, I actually have another initiative that I'm working right here at ONR uh, that I call Decision Superiority. And that kind of gets after what you're saying there. So we all think, react, make decisions differently. The more we can understand how we make those decisions and how our brain functions, how the input in our eyes, our ears, how that is assessed, how do we optimize the way information is collected, assimilated, and presented to the human, whether it's visual form, auditory, whatever, how do we do that in a way that I have a better chance of making a decision faster than you and hopefully writer, and may not always write, but but writer than you. Is that a word? I don't know. But, but more right than wrong. More okay. right. Yeah. yeah, right. So that's what I'm trying to get after. That's decision superiority. That's a whole other initiative that I'm actually, uh, we're just getting started on this year. Because I think, well, there's a lot of work that's been done on many aspects of this, you know, brain science, you know, visual. I don't think we today really put the whole thing together in a context of I want to make a better decision more often than my adversary does. Uh, and that may sound really, you know, but as we look at it, we're not really there yet. And because a lot of this is based on kind of new brain science that we know more about every single day, as well as the ability with software to rapidly change the way information is collected, analyzed, and presented. This is a very rich opportunity for some amazing discovery. And I think just amazing acceleration of our ability to do <laughs> to do better, faster. <laughs> And I want to ask you about the human aspect of this, especially at Stanford University and some of the other academic areas where ONR and other research facilities of the military are engaged. Yeah. You know, in the military, there's a tradition of butting heads over ideas. And at some point, somebody says, OK, this is the way we go. You know, on campuses, do you find that the people involved from the campuses are able to maybe abandon some of the ideas that seem to be so important about coloring books and yeah, safe absolutely. spaces and so forth, and really talk about lethality and talk about the future of things in a way that people are going to argue back with you, and it might get heated. A lot of that's because of those. Again, they they bring in the kids or kids, the students who are younger, so the blinders are wide open. They're not as restricted on what they what they already believe because they they just haven't lived enough life yet. There's goodness in that. There's also a little sometimes you know you got to kind of give a little reality and it's okay uh, but i think that will result in some of that thinking that will challenge a lot of our assumptions and things that are not going to be popular in a place like the pentagon at least not until they've been socialized and you try to show let me t explain to you what this can really do and that's also something that my organization can actually take some of those ideas and we can actually go do experiments to actually show maybe some will be in modeling sim digital world but some will be with real hardware and again the hardware I'm talking about is mostly going to be much lower cost things. So we can actually do these experiments, hopefully more frequently, uh, more widely, so more people can get to see and really challenge our assumptions by bringing in some of these new ideas, new thinking with some of this new kit, this new hardware. And 
it mentions here in some of the uh, the values of this Gordianot project that you want to look at the technology insights and expertise of Stanford Engineering. So that's another yeah. element that seems to be coming in here. And this because it, it resides at Stanford. I mean, we're obviously going to look wide and far. And again, when these teams get set up, they reach out, you know, anywhere and everywhere they can reach into to provide them insights. Clearly being in Silicon Valley, you know, as you know, there's a host of, of technology companies in that part of the world. There's a host of startups out there. There's a lot of venture capital out there, which is also something we hope to maybe get them excited. I mean, because one of my premises here is I think there's a sector of our society that is just waiting to be tapped into. It's like, you know, coach, put me in. I'm ready to go. There are so many companies out there and some that are not even companies yet. Just a couple of folks that have a good idea that are figuring out how do I get this idea to the right thought leader inside the Pentagon or some other part of the military or, or the government. I mean, this is really a whole of government approach we've got to take on here because it's not just the military. More than anything, Ukraine not being part of this, but, but more than anything, we're in an economic war with China. This is really an economic war right at this point. Now, could it go like Ukraine? Yeah, unfortunately it could. But if we can figure out a way to energize the economy of this nation and other like-minded nations around the globe working together, I just don't think China could keep up. I really don't. We, if we can unleash that and harness that energy, that excitement, we can scale this up to a level that even China would have a hard time competing with. I grew up as a submarine warfare officer, Rick overtrained, you know, very much a follow the rules, follow the procedure kind of guy. Uh, I've gotten to a point in my life where not that I don't want to follow the rules. That's still important for operating nuclear submarines and other things. But there are definitely places where we need to start jumping outside our normal lanes of thinking and start taking some risks that we traditionally have not done in the past. And I'm trying to find ways, you know, you can tell I'm kind of I'm kind of there. So now I'm trying to find ways to get my my friends, as it were, there uh, that are at my level or higher. Because while they all recognize the challenge, they all recognize the threat, I think they struggle with how do we do that. And, and again, some of it's because we sometimes grow up in very narrow slices, and so we don't know what's too far afield from us. I have been blessed in my career to have many, many jobs in and around acquisition. I mean, I've had almost every job in and around acquisition. I've had some time on Capitol Hill as a liaison. I've been a commanding officer of nuclear submarine. I have seen a lot. And that is just dumb luck, Tom. I'm just, I don't know how it happened, but it did. So I'm in a position where I now can see across many different lanes. And I'm sure there's stuff I'm missing, but I see a lot. And I'm just here to tell you, if we don't make some major changes in the way we do business, we're going to be struggling to keep up. Again, people understand that, but they need some guidance and help on figuring out how to do that. I'm trying to provide some of that. Yeah, you mentioned acquisition, and that's an important point here because at some point these technologies and these ideas need to be commercialized. And because yeah. of the budgeting and planning process of the Pentagon, which ironically was brought in by whiz kids of decades yeah. ago, right out of yeah. college almost, or you know, some of them were, but it has created what is commonly referred to as the valley of death for right. ideas to operationalizing. And acquisition is in the middle of all of that. So does this particular project look at the acquisition aspects or do you have that being researched somewhere else? Yeah. So the valley of death or what I call the mode of despair, because valley implies it's a natural phenomenon. It's not natural. It's a moat. It's intentionally dug, usually around a PEO, program executive officer, because he or she, uh, you know, is trying to keep their programs on cost and schedule and performance. But they see new things, even things that will enhance performance as somewhat risky because it could risk schedule, could risk cost. So as a result, there's a resistance to kind of new things coming in. And so when you get in these programs, especially the big complex warships, these are decades-long programs. 
And so it becomes very hard for me to, to inject new technology into that once they've signed the contract to start building. And again, Having been an acquisition guy, you know, I am one. Having been a program manager, I, I'm a PEO right now, some certain things that I do. I understand all that. I get it. But I also think we could find ways to make this go better and go faster. And one is there needs to be an owner of that bridge, whether it's a bridge over the moat or a bridge over the valley. You need to have an owner. Today, there's no single owner. I take technology in my own our world. Uh, the science and technology world, and I can only push it to about TRL level five or six. That's because of the, the money that I have is the basic research, you know, 6.1, 2, and 3 in budget parlance, okay? That's where I take it. To get it to go to TRL 8 or 9, where a PEO wants it before they're willing to put it on a system or, or a ship or aircraft or whatever it's going to go on, you have to put more money in to bring it that far. That money resides normally in the PEOs or in a couple other pockets, but it's normally in the PEOs. And again, they are using that to do kind of some of their existing modernizations of things. So today it's like a, a you got to get the right people in the right room. You have a little bit of heated discussion and then eventually someone breaks a deal. So it takes serendipity, relationships, networks. It shouldn't be that way. It, it should be more of a process. And yes, not everything needs to cross the bridge. But if you have an owner of the bridge who's given authority and money, the right kind of money, you could move things across the bridge faster. And then the PO could say yes or no if, if they still need to. But I think it would be far more yeses than nos if you do this right. So I'm trying to figure out how to create the bridge and then maybe be the owner. I don't know, but, but at least propose the idea and figure out how to do that. That's a conversation that is actually getting pretty exciting right now uh, in the building. So we'll see where this goes. But I think this is an important aspect of how you move technology faster. Put one person in charge and then let them own it give them the authorities, and move stuff across. Go back to World War II. Think about how Vannevar Bush was the guy that, you know, the President Roosevelt trusted for all science and technology stuff. Things like the Manhattan Project came out of it. Think about Rickover. Rickover came out and, you know, out of nowhere, just kind of took over and just did it. Uh, there were proposals that it should be split between many different bureaus in the Navy. And he said, no, that won't work. You have to single up all lines on, on one individual, one organization, and let them do it. And if they fail... Okay, fire them and put them aside, but let's give them a chance. So that bridge concept is really important. We've got to figure out that piece out because I think that's a critical link here that could actually save this, make us go much faster. Rear Admiral Lauren Selby is Chief of Naval Research. Thanks so much. Hey, Tom, this has been fantastic. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.